You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. everyone. Thanks for downloading episode 203 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. While Washington sweltered through the long, hot summer of 1862, Abraham Lincoln made the momentous decision that would define both his presidency and the course of the Civil War. The great question of what to do about slavery had provoked increasingly heated debates on Capitol Hill for months. Back in March, Lincoln had asked Congress to pass a joint resolution providing federal aid to any state willing to adopt a plan for the gradual, compensated abolition of slavery. But the President's plan, aimed at the still-loyal slaveholding border states, went nowhere when the border state representatives refused to endorse it. Meanwhile, the Republican majority in Congress began to push its own agenda on slavery. In April, Congress passed a historic bill providing for the compensated emancipation of slaves in the District of Columbia. The bill met with Lincoln's wholehearted approval, since in areas like the nation's capital, which was under the jurisdiction of the federal government, he had, quote, never doubted the constitutional authority of Congress to abolish slavery. But the situation became more complex when the radical Republicans in Congress began to address slavery in the seceded, rebellious southern states where slavery already existed and was protected by the Constitution. In July, despite the vehement protests of Democrats and conservative Republicans, the radical and moderate Republican majority passed a new second confiscation bill. Broader in scope than the one passed the previous year, which had limited the federal government to confiscating and freeing only those fugitive slaves employed by the Confederate military, the new act emancipated all slaves of persons engaged in rebellion, regardless of involvement in military affairs. In reality, the Second Confiscation Act was ill-considered, since it provided no workable means of enforcement and no procedure to determine whether the owner of a slave who crossed into Union lines was actually engaged in insurrection, but nevertheless, the bill passed. Before signing it, Lincoln obtained revisions that made it more likely to hold up in the courts. Within the cabinet, also, there was heated debate over slavery. The discussions had grown, quote, so bitter, according to Secretary of State William Seward, that personal and even official relationships among members were affected, leading to, quote, a prolonged discontinuance of cabinet meetings. 
Although Tuesdays and Fridays were still designated for cabinet meetings, each secretary remained in his office unless a messenger arrived to confirm that a meeting would actually be held. Seward recalled that when these regular sessions were still taking place, Lincoln had listened intently but had not taken, quote, an active part in them. For Lincoln, the problem of slavery was not an abstract issue. While he agreed with the most passionate abolitionists that slavery was a moral, a social, and a political wrong, as president, he couldn't ignore the constitutional protection of the institution in the states where it already existed. But McClellan's embarrassing failure before the gates of Richmond during the Peninsula Campaign in the summer of 1862 made it clear that extraordinary means were necessary to save the Union. And so the military situation gave Lincoln an opening to deal more directly with slavery. During the Peninsula Campaign, almost daily reports from the front lines made clear that slaves were being employed in countless ways by the Confederacy to support its military effort. The slaves dug trenches and built fortifications for the rebel army. They were brought into camps to serve as wagon drivers, cooks, and hospital attendants, freeing freeing up soldiers for combat. They labored on the southern home front on plantations and farms so that white men could go off to war. With the South's slaves playing a crucial role in the Confederate war effort, if that system were disrupted or significantly disturbed, then it could only be to the benefit of the Union. Seen in this light, emancipation could be considered a military necessity, a legitimate exercise of the President's vaguely defined constitutional war powers. The slaveholding but still loyal border states, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, had refused Lincoln's idea of gradual compensated emancipation as a voluntary first step. So now a historic decision was taking shape in the president's mind. Lincoln revealed his preliminary thinking to Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells on Sunday, July 13, 1862, as they rode together in the president's carriage to the funeral of the infant son of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Wells later recorded in his diary that during the carriage ride, Lincoln informed them that he was considering, quote, emancipating the slaves by proclamation in case the rebels did not cease to persist in their war. Lincoln said he had, quote, dwelt earnestly on the gravity, importance, and delicacy of the subject and had, quote, come to the conclusion that it was a military necessity absolutely essential for the salvation of the Union that we must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued. By framing the issue as a military necessity essential for victory, the constitutional protection of slavery could and would be overridden by the constitutionally sanctioned war power of the president. Wells clearly recognized that this approach represented, quote, a new departure for the president, for until this time, in all our previous interviews, he had been prompt and emphatic in denouncing any interference by the general government with the subject. Seward, who was normally pretty chatty, said only that the, quote, subject involved consequences so vast and momentous that he should wish to bestow on it mature reflection before giving a decisive answer, end quote. Although Seward did admit that as an act tied to the president's war powers, he was inclined to think it was, quote, justifiable. 
and there the matter rested until Monday morning, July 21st, when messengers were dispatched across Washington with notices of a special cabinet meeting to be held at 10 a.m. Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase wrote in his diary that, quote, It has been so long since any consultation has been held that it struck me as a novelty. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey, not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Just when Abraham Lincoln decided to issue a proclamation of emancipation remains unknown. What is known is that on July 7, 1862, he had journeyed to Harrison's Landing on the James River to meet with McClellan, who had presented him with a letter in which Little Mac insisted the, quote, forcible abolition of slavery was beneath the dignity of civilized armies. But the visit to the peninsula just after McClellan had been whipped by Robert E. Lee in the Seven Days Battles seems to have led Lincoln to the opposite conclusion from what Little Mac intended. In the early stages of the Civil War, Lincoln himself had subscribed to this same conciliatory approach. But in July 1862, he went back to Washington, convinced that this approach toward fighting the war with kid gloves on had been discredited and must be abandoned. Instead, what would come to be called hard war had become necessary for military victory and restoration of the Union. Hard war was not simply army against army, but of society against society. This meant abandoning previous efforts to shield Southern civilians from the consequences of secession and rebellion. Lincoln returned to Washington on July 10th as Congress completed work on the Second Confiscation Act with its emancipation provisions. 
Two days later, the president met with delegations from the border states to unsuccessfully press his plan for gradual, compensated emancipation. The following day, July 13th, Lincoln shared that carriage ride with Seward and Wells, in which he first brought up the subject of emancipation by presidential proclamation. And then at the cabinet meeting on July 21st, four days after he had signed the Second Confiscation Act, Lincoln informed the secretaries that he had resolved on decisive new measures. He presented the drafts of four new orders. The first gave Union Army field commanders the authority to live off the land in hostile territory, that is, to appropriate the property of Southern civilians. The other orders authorized the use of blacks as military laborers, required the Army to keep records on confiscated property, including slaves, so Unionist owners could receive compensation, and envisioned, quote, the colonization of Negroes in some tropical territory. The first three orders received the cabinet's unanimous approval, but there was little support for the colonization proposal, and it was dropped. When the discussion ran long, the president scheduled another cabinet session for the next day, July 22nd. For that meeting, Lincoln said he understood the, quote, differences in the cabinet on the slavery question, end quote, and welcomed their suggestions after they heard what he had to say. But he wanted them to know that he, quote, had resolved upon this step and had not called them together to ask for their advice. Lincoln had prepared a draft of a new order, which he read to the secretaries. It consisted of three sentences. The first sentence cited the Second Confiscation Act and warned Confederates to cease their rebellion within 60 days or face the confiscation of their property, including slaves. The second reaffirmed Lincoln's support for gradual, compensated emancipation. And the third sentence, invoking his authority as Commander-in-Chief, declared that on January 1, 1863, quote, all persons held as slaves within any state or states still under Confederate control, quote, shall then, thenceforward, and forever be free. Presented without fanfare and appearing almost as an afterthought, this final sentence constituted the initial version of the Emancipation Proclamation. It went well beyond anything Congress or Lincoln had previously proposed. Previous steps toward emancipation had carefully distinguished between loyal, that is, Unionist slave owners, and Confederate slave owners. Also, the Second Confiscation Act, despite its potential for future emancipation, did not apply to the vast majority of slaves until they came within the lines of Union armies or the control of the Union navies. But now, Abraham Lincoln audaciously proposed to extend wartime emancipation to all the slaves throughout Confederate territory. Abolition would be immediate and without compensation. Whether the owner was loyal to the Union or a rebel made no difference. Lincoln's cabinet, apart from Wells and Seward, of course, seems to have been stunned by this announcement. Chase, the most radical member, remained silent. He admitted shortly after the meeting that the plan, quote, went beyond anything I have recommended, end quote. Chase preferred incremental emancipation by local army commanders as the Union Army occupied more southern territory. Stanton, who had favored emancipation for months, and Attorney General Edward Bates supported the immediate release of the document. 
Postmaster General Montgomery Blair expressed opposition, fearing that emancipation would cost the Republicans voters in the fall elections. Gideon Wells said nothing. Secretary of the Interior Caleb Smith kept silent as well, though he had serious reservations and reportedly later told his assistant that if Lincoln issued the proclamation, he would resign. Perhaps most surprising was Seward's reaction. For months, American diplomats had been recommending to the Secretary of State that emancipation be made an explicit Union war aim in order to avert foreign recognition of the Confederacy. But Seward had long believed that the war itself had doomed slavery, making any explicit federal action against the institution unnecessary. In addition, Seward thought that issuing the proclamation immediately, as Lincoln intended, would seem an act of desperation by an administration grasping at straws. It would be far better, Seward argued, to wait for a military victory so that the proclamation could be issued from a position of strength. Seward's argument swayed Lincoln. The president later admitted, quote, The wisdom of the view of the Secretary of State struck me with very great force. It was an aspect of the case that, in all my thought upon the subject, I had entirely overlooked. The result was that I put the draft of the proclamation aside, waiting for victory. Despite shelving his Emancipation Proclamation for the time being, Lincoln did issue the proposed orders allowing military commanders to seize and destroy private property, though not, quote, in wantonness or malice, and he also released the warning to the South of the coming implementation of the Second Confiscation Act. But then, over the next two months, the Union war effort stalled, and in fact seemed to take a backward step with a disastrous defeat at Second Bull Run. In addition, during those two months, there was an unusual sequence of events as rumors of a possible Emancipation Proclamation found their way into the northern newspapers. But at the same time, Lincoln made a series of widely reported statements that cast doubt on his willingness to issue such a proclamation. Even though his mind was already firmly set on the issue, Abraham Lincoln continued to publicly deny the inevitability of emancipation. And this is what he implied to the influential editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, after Greeley, in mid-August, wrote a scathing editorial in which he took the president to task for the administration's refusal to directly attack slavery. A few days later, Lincoln replied to Greeley in a letter that the president made sure was widely published. He said, quote, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. Lincoln skirted the truth in this famous letter since he had already decided to issue his proclamation, but what he was most almost certainly doing in his response to Greeley was shrewdly preparing Northerners to think of emancipation as a measure necessary to win the war. 
Only then, Lincoln believed, would Northern whites accept it. Critics often point to the response to Greeley as proof that the evil of slavery was never as important to Lincoln as the restoration of the Union. But such critics forget that Abraham Lincoln knew full well when he wrote his response to Greeley that he was about to redefine the fight to embrace both Union and also emancipation. But Lincoln knew how difficult it would be to redefine the goals of a great war in mid-struggle. There was no guarantee that Union troops would fight as readily for the freedom of the black slave as they had for the government of the white man. So in the two months between July and September, the president continued to work to subtly shape northern public opinion. On August 14th, with the proclamation still unannounced, a delegation of free African Americans visited the White House. Lincoln greeted them with an icily formal statement, read aloud without interruption or question, suggesting that the war would never have begun had it not been for slavery, seemingly casting blame upon the slaves for the current war between the North and the South. Lincoln also declared that the black and white races would never be able to live in harmony, and so, quote, it is better for us both, therefore, to be separated. The president strongly urged the freedmen to consider emigrating to Africa or the Caribbean. As was the case with the Greeley letter, Lincoln was moving to mold, or in this case, blunt, public opinion. The president knew his remarks would be printed in the newspapers, so he ensured he wouldn't be portrayed as a bleeding-heart friend of the black race. This, he likely reasoned, would further guarantee that when his proclamation was issued, northern whites would accept his assurance that it was a military necessity, which would increase the chances of its acceptance. But critics have used the statement against him ever since. In its day, however, it functioned precisely as Lincoln hoped. And as for his own long-held belief in the idea of voluntary colonizing free blacks overseas, Well, Lincoln eventually abandoned it when he realized it would prove unworkable in practice and when it met with the intense opposition of most free blacks who didn't see why they should be asked to leave the land of their birth just to avoid offending the sensibilities of white people. At any rate, after a long two-month wait, finally on September 17, 1862, Union troops gave Abraham Lincoln the opening he had been waiting for, when Robert E. Lee was forced to retreat from Maryland after the Battle of Antietam. Thanks to George McClellan's inept battlefield leadership, Antietam was by no means a decisive or overwhelming triumph, but it was enough. And so on September 22nd, Lincoln summoned his cabinet and read them a revised proclamation that he had been rewriting. This time there was even less opportunity for debate than in July. The president bluntly told the gathered secretaries, quote, I do not wish your advice. Lincoln told them that he had made a promise to himself and to his maker that if Lee was driven back, then, quote, I would crown the result with a declaration of freedom for the slaves. God, the president added with finality, had decided the case in the slaves' favor. And so on September 22, 1862, just as he had promised his cabinet, himself, and his God, Abraham Lincoln announced the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It gave the southern states engaged in rebellion until January 1, 1863, to return to the Union, or forfeit their slaves, who would otherwise be, quote, 
then, thenceforward, and forever free. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, The End of Slavery in America by Alan C. Gelzo. This isn't the first book that we've recommended by Alan Gelzo and won't be the last. Uh, I think he's won three Lincoln Prizes now, uh, so you can probably guess he's one of the foremost Lincoln scholars in the country. And his work is always enlightening. And this particular study is, we think, really the definitive account of how Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we wrap up our discussion of the Emancipation Proclamation, for now. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.